0: Hey, you listen to podcasts. Can I assume you like audiobooks as well? And if so, can I please hope you're not a member of Audible.com yet? I've been a member for over 10 years, and now I've joined their affiliates program, which means you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial and support Bionic Planet by going to audibletrial.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's Bionic Planet as one word with no dots, dashes, or spaces, because the system doesn't seem to accept those. And you can support me by signing up and checking out their services. It might even work if you're a member. I don't think it does, but give it a try. They've got over 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. The Dogwood Alliance is an environmental NGO based in the southeastern United States, a region that produces 12% of the world's wood, pulp, and paper. Staples is a massive stationery and office supply chain based up in the northern part of the United States in Massachusetts, and it buys reams and reams of paper from suppliers like Georgia Pacific and International Paper, who in turn buy paper made from trees taken from forests, across the very region that Dogwood is trying to protect. The two organizations haven't always gotten along, and they even fought each other for years before today's guests sat down over beers at a pub in Asheville, North Carolina, called Jack of the Wood. Mark Buckley is the vice president in charge of environmental affairs for Staples, and Dana Smith runs the Dogwood Alliance. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the
1: Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big, fat price on it, and, of course, add to that, drop the subsidies.
0: Earth. We broke it. We own it. And nothing is as it was, not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we see how that impact is being managed in Appalachia, which is a beautiful hilly part of the United States that stretches from northern Pennsylvania down across all of West Virginia, parts of Virginia, eastern Kentucky and Tennessee, the western parts of north and south carolina and the northern parts of georgia alabama and mississippi if you've ever had the pleasure of hiking along the appalachian trail or driving along those winding west virginia roads you know how beautiful this part of the world is but did you know that 90 percent of the forests are privately owned it's true they're privately owned and the plots are small usually less than 2,000 acres and they're under tremendous pressure so 10 years ago Dogwood Alliance and Staples got together and launched a massive experiment called Carbon Canopy to see if carbon markets could be used to help landowners manage their forests more sustainably. I'm speaking with Mark Buckley and uh, Dana Smith. Mark is the vice president in charge of environmental affairs for Staples which is a giant chain of stationary stores that buys massive amounts of paper. And Dana runs the Dogwood Alliance, which is an environmental NGO active across the southern United States, a region where trees are being ground into pulp to make paper. And we're looking at an experiment that you guys began about 10 years ago to see if you could use carbon markets to help small landowners to manage their forests more sustainably, basically chopping fewer trees and replacing them more quickly. Uh, This ensures that the forests will mop up more carbon dioxide, and that's where the carbon markets come in. Trees breathe in carbon dioxide. They breathe out oxygen, which means they absorb greenhouse gases. So if you plant them or save them, you can generate offsets that companies can buy to reduce their own carbon footprints. And the question is whether the income from generating offsets would be enough to make up for the cost of switching to this sustainable way of doing business and getting the forest certified as sustainable by the Forest Stewardship Council, or FSC. And the conclusion, which we'll loop back to later in the show, was, yes, it can work, but only if your forest is larger than 2,600 acres, and only if the price of carbon is more than $11.50. It's an important finding, and we will come back to it later, but I wanted to start with Mark, because I found it really interesting to see how you and Staples got involved in this. You guys have pledged that 100% of your paper products will either be recycled or certified uh, under the FSC, uh, but you've found that there's a shortage of FSC-certified paper. So you started buying offsets with the idea of, A, offsetting your industrial emissions and reducing your own carbon footprint, but also paying landowners to become certified or to basically increase your own supplies of certified paper? Is that an accurate summary?
1: Yeah, I think the, um, the intent really was for us to see if there was an opportunity for us to create a model that would encourage FSC certification for, for smallholders in the South and landowners in the South. We looked at the carbon markets as a potential vehicle to, to do both. We thought that improving land management practices under FSC would also improve carbon stocks in forests And and as a result, that net carbon benefit, you know, would be good for obviously um, offsetting impacts associated with climate change, but also improve the availability of FSC certified fiber in an area that we source a lot of our paper and wood products from.
0: What I wanted to try to do was kind of go back to the beginning a bit and talk about the genesis, because there's a really interesting backstory on how this relationship came about. And if I could briefly go back to the early 1990s because that's where a lot of these things were beginning. You had the uh, the Earth Summit in Rio. Everybody was talking about the environment. A few years before that, you had the Amazon burning. That was always in the news. Uh, the Forest Stewardship Council was created in 1993. And then we get to 1996, which was a pivotal year in this. Uh, Staples, that was the year that your sales topped $3 billion. You became a member of the Fortune 500 And then that same year, the Dogwood Alliance and this other group called the Forestland Group were both formed.
2: Yeah, I had never put all of that together. So that's
0: really interesting. Yeah, it was interesting to see see that that convergence. Now, how did the Dogwood Alliance, how did did you guys come into existence?
2: Yeah, so around 1996, um, people across the region from local community groups to environmental organizations, hunters, even solid wood users, started to see a massive uptake in the amount of wood coming from southern forests, Uh, a lot more clear-cutting, a lot more conversion of natural forests to plantations that sort of reached a height uh, in the mid-1990s. And people across the region were looking around and wondering what was going on and a lot of concern about the impacts of the acceleration of logging across the south on communities, on the forest, and ecosystem health and also on the the economy of the South. And what was happening at that time was a massive increase in paper production in the southeastern U.S. And so um, Dogwood was formed, uh, was a grassroots organization that was formed uh, to elevate the voice of concern of people across the region and begin to try to figure out how to address that problem. Mm-hmm. Our first campaigns were really focused on getting government to do studies of the impacts of this expansion in the industry, and ultimately, our goal was to get you know some sort of government policy in place to protect our communities and our
0: forests. I was really shocked to see how much paper is produced in the, in the Southeast. When I think of deforestation, I tend to think of the Amazon and the developing countries. And there was something I found in your report, kind of jumping forward a bit here, but there, you, you said that... Um, I'll, I'll just read from it here while fSC certified forests in the u s grew from nine million to twenty three million acres between two thousand three and two thousand seven only sixteen percent of this was in the south, just under four million acres or two percent of southern forests why why is that so low in the south still to this day?
2: yeah I mean I think that's a you know question we're all grappling with um, I think though that as mark Uh, suggested earlier, you know, look in the southeastern U.S., 90% of the land is privately owned. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of that is in the hands of very small owners. So it's a very complex supply chain, uh, number one. Mm -hmm. But number two, uh, you know, in order to become certified, there's a cost involved in that. And there's not always an adequate return in terms of you know the benefit that the landowner would get from harvesting and getting certified. So that was really the impetus behind this project, was to see if we couldn't fill that gap, to see if we couldn't create the right kind of in- financial incentive using carbon markets to both cover the cost of certification, but also to actually create more revenue for landowners for leaving more trees in the, in the woods during a harvest and doing more light-touch harvesting. Because if you're a landowner uh, and you're leaving trees in the woods right now, you're leaving money behind in the ground.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So the carbon project was an effort to create more financial market incentive for landowners to actually become FSC certified.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it is interesting to see the costs involved in a, getting certified under FSC, and then the whole carbon accounting process is also really expensive, and we'll get to that in a bit. Mark, you were working with Staples back then, but you weren't on the environmental side? I mean,
1: Yeah, so, I, I mean, I've, I've, so I've been with, with Staples since 1990, so nearly 28 years. And so for the first 12 years, I headed up our facilities and procurement groups here at Staples. But I have a background in biology and environmental science, and this is a dream job for me to move into this role, stay with a company that I love. Uh, Fifteen years ago, an opportunity to, to, to take this role on. The galvanizing moment for Staples, certainly around our relationship directly to forests, you know, came as a result of um, engagement and campaign, you know, that Dogwood had against uh, Staples back in, you know, 2001, 2002, and, you um, you know, I think to our credit, you know, as a company, you know, initially we were a little bit taken back. We weren't quite sure what this was all about. And and then, uh, you know, I met with uh, Dana and others and started to develop a better understanding of the impacts of our supply chain and, and I think really started to understand, you know, at that time there were a couple of other certification schemes that were starting to gain steam but also really understood a bit more about um, the credibility and the rigor associated with Forest Stewardship Council certification, and it was really at that point in time that you know we we committed to try to uh, bring more certified, you know, fiber into our supply chain and really understand, you know, the dynamics of that. And and Dana, you know, has been a really wonderful partner uh, in Dogwood, you know, since those days because she's you know intimately connected to the you know to the landowner base in the South and and understands the dynamics certainly better than we did. So. It was a it was a really great collaborative effort to really start developing that understanding at least initially. This is before the, obviously before this project took off, and that really helped us build the first paper procurement policy in the industry in 2002. And and at that point in time, you know, it committed us to start to move toward a more more certified fiber base.
2: And I would say, from our perspective, our first sort of effort at trying to address the issues in the south was focused on getting the government to do assessments and trying to get some government policy in place. And we were very successful at getting a lot of state studies and even uh, were instrumental in leveraging the first ever federal study on forest sustainability across the South, which was the Southern Forest Resource Assessment, published in 19, or maybe I think it was 2000. Um, And even though all these studies were sort of coming out saying You know, how much forest acres had been lost to plantations, how much logging was going on, what the growth to removal ratios looked like on industrial lands, and and painted a pretty, you know, clear picture that there were some real sustainability issues in the U.S. South. The government was not really willing to take that to the next level and uh, adopt meaningful policy. Uh, And we recognized what a political uphill battle we were facing in the world's largest wood-producing region to get regulation, especially on private lands. So we took a step back and we said, well, at the time, you know, there had been campaigns that had been run that had focused on the Home Depot, getting them to make commitments to stop purchasing from old-growth forests in Canada and we thought, well, maybe we could take that kind of approach. Let's look at what the customer base looks like on the part of the big paper companies um, and see if there are companies out there that we think we could push to become leaders in the marketplace uh, on southern forest issues. And uh, Staples emerged. You know, I have to give Mark a lot of credit, too, here, because you know we had over 600 protests out in front of Staples stores mm-hmm. over the course of just a couple of years. And, uh, you know, what we saw in Staples was real leadership. You know, at first, yes, there was some, you know, I think confusion about, like, why are you targeting us? We don't really log for us. And also a little pushback. But over the course of our relationship, we really saw a company who – started to really hear the concerns that we were raising, and really started to try to figure out what a solution could look like for them and for us. And over the course of the years, since Staples has adopted the policy and we ended the campaign and we gave them public support, Staples has been one of the most important allies in this work to change the way that forests are managed in the southeastern US in terms of in the corporate sector. Um, And Mark, in particular, has been a real visionary and was really sort of the person who proposed this idea of maybe we start to work to see how we can leverage ecosystem markets as a way to incentivize private landowners to uh, practice more conservation forestry in the South.
0: Jargon alert. Dana mentioned ecosystem markets which are a cornerstone of the 25 billion dollar restoration economy that I've covered a lot on Bionic Planet. Ecosystem markets pay people to keep living ecosystems like forests healthy based in part on the services these ecosystems provide like carbon sequestration, water filtration, and soil retention. The money often comes from downstream users of these services or from developers who get permission to damage environmentally valuable terrain in exchange for restoring an area of equal or greater environmental value. In most cases, even with this permission, the developers have to follow something called the mitigation hierarchy, which means they first have to avoid unnecessary damage, then minimize what damage they do cause, then fix what they can, and finally offset any remaining impact through ecosystem markets. Mark, I'm always fascinated by the internal dynamics of a company, and I'm wondering if you could tell us what was happening internally. I'm sure that, I mean, there must have been a lot of back and forth about this. Why are they targeting us? Are they right, or are they crazy? Um, you know, how did you acknowledge what the issues were, and then how was it pitched and dealt with internally?
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's a great great point, Steve. I think, first and foremost, there's this awareness that needs to be created that that you have an impact in other parts of your supply chain that you may or may not see or may, may or may not quite understand. And by the way, I think you also need to acknowledge that your responsibility can't just begin and end at point of purchase. You know, it need, we need to think about, you know, those impacts. And, you know, over the last 15 or 20 years, you know, whether you're in their apparel Industry, or you know, the tea and coffee industry, or others. You know, you you take a look at you know environmental issues and social issues and so forth associated with those supply chains. And companies that are you know big brands and big users of those raw materials and those inputs, you know, need to understand you know what those impacts are. And so, quite candidly, as, as Dana mentioned, we were on our learning journey, right? And so, you know, we begin the learning journey by by first and foremost acknowledging that you know we do have these impact areas, and then. The second question we have to ask is, you know, what can we do about it, right? And, and I think that the first step that we took, and, and I can remember, a you know, meeting we had fairly early on when we brought, you know, Dana and some colleagues up and, and met with some of our buyers and merchants in the paper side. And, and, you know, they presented, you know, their case and some of the challenges and, and some of the potential solutions and then you know our buyers and merchants on the other hand talked about some of the realities of markets at the time and some of the challenges that they had relative to trying to make those kinds of changes. You know, so bottom line really was that through the whole process there was a, a degree of trust that needed to be built, you know, and, and was and, and I think throughout the whole process I would say that, you know, there was um, always a, a tremendous amount of respect for each organization, which I think was was really key. Um, and it allowed us to, to to continue to sort of accelerate our learning and start to think a bit more outside of the box in terms of what we could or couldn't do.
0: Dana, I think initially you were also you had this when you had the campaign against Staples. Were you also going after International Paper and in Georgia Pacific, or did they kind of come into the picture later?
2: Yeah. Well, our theory of change here was that if we could get enough large customers to adopt standards for their paper procurement policies and then you know, work to, with their suppliers to get them to meet those standards, uh, that we would ultimately change the practices of the biggest paper companies in the region, and yes, Georgia Pacific and International Paper being the two largest with the end goal that that would then translate to a change in practices on the ground where it matters the most, right, in the woods. So that was our theory of change, and Staples was the very first link in our theory of change supply chain, if you will. Mm. Um, We went on to target others in the office supply industry and others in the packaging sector, um, and the sum total of getting you know, dozens of companies to make commitments to uh, environmental paper procurement policies, giving preference to FSC and other things, uh, resulted in our ability to get to the table with Georgia Pacific and international paper in a way that allowed us to um, negotiate memorandum of understanding with both of those companies uh, and we're still, to this day, working with them as well uh, on the implementation of their commitments.
0: Yeah, this I, this whole issue of uh, making a public commitment and then sticking to it is is so important as well. One thing I, that I found interesting, too, there, because you, you, you created this coalition. Uh, and this kind of, as, as I understand it, 2006, you two sat down with uh, Andrew Goldberg. Uh, you guys had a meeting in Asheville, North Carolina, which is a... Uh, it just makes sense that you're in a microbrewery in Asheville. <laughs> it's a beautiful town. But you, w- what, what happened at this meeting and what came out of it? There's, uh, it? It seems like that was a pretty big deal, and afterwards you came out with this idea that we're going to form this coalition and formally get all these different companies involved and we're going to start this big, grand experiment. And that's kind of what led to this report that came out last month.
2: Yeah, and let me just clarify, Uh, Andrew was working for Dogwood at the time, and he was our person tasked with working with the companies that had implemented policies to help move those those commitments forward. And so he was our primary uh, person who was in contact with Mark post-campaign on the implementation of Staples Commitment. Um, He now works for the Rainforest Alliance, um, but at the time he was working for Dogwood. And we were really focused on trying to figure out how to make sure that Staples policy actually resulted in change within its suppliers, and also, most importantly, again, to make sure that that policy helped to leverage change on the ground in the South. Mm-hmm. And that's where we were at that moment in time when we sat down with Mark at Jack of the Wood.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mark? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, no, that's that's true, and and I and I also think you know, to, at the same time, you know, we were we were challenged because we had this policy that had been out since 2002, committed to increasing the amount of FSC, FSC certified um, paper products in our assortment.
0: They were challenged by their own commitment to increase the amount of certified paper they sell. Remember their aim is for 100% of the stuff to either be recycled or to come from forests that are certified as being sustainably managed. And they're currently at 30% according to the Staples entry at SupplyChange, that's supply-change.org, which is a forest trends initiative that tracks the progress that companies report and their commitments to reduce deforestation. As Dana pointed out, staples couldn't change unless the paper companies it bought from changed. And the paper companies couldn't change unless the mills changed. And the mills couldn't change unless the landowners were managing their land sustainably. None of them can move if the others don't, and that includes us, the consumers and investors. But if we all move together, we can beat this thing.
1: We had a bottleneck where we couldn't get enough certified timber you know out of the southeast. I think the initial conversations were well, how do we stimulate that demand you know with a small um, landowner base? It's very different than other parts of the world like Canada and even the northern US where there's larger tracts of land and it's much easier to get certified. so I think that was um, you know that was sort of the impetus for, for our, you know for us having these initial conversations at the same time, you know, Staples was engaged with the World Resources Institute, and we, we were part of a group called the Green Power Market Development Group. And at that point in time, we were trying to increase the amount of renewable energy um, that we used or, or cited, you know, in our, in our locations. And one of the mechanisms at the time that was starting to gain real traction in voluntary and re- regulatory markets was this, this whole idea of car- carbon offsets Um, or renewable energy certificates as a way to to stimulate development of new renewable energy projects.
0: Jargon alert! Renewable Energy Certificates, or RECs, are a way to pay for renewable energy, even if you buy your electricity through a grid that's fed by multiple sources including coal-fired power plants. The problem with electricity is that it's like water. Once it enters the grid, you have no way of knowing where it came from. So if you want to pay extra to buy renewable energy, you don't run a dedicated cable from the wind farm to your fuse box, but instead you buy from the grid and then pay something extra to those providers who inject energy from wind farms or solar installations into the grid. The Renewable Energy Certificate is how you do that. You could also, of course, support the creation of a wind farm by purchasing carbon offsets, although these days, renewable energy projects don't usually need carbon finance to be viable.
1: All of those things together started to create a germ of an idea that Dana and I and Andrew started to bounce around, and that was this emergence of land-based carbon offsets as a potential mechanism in other parts of the world to conserve forests and to tie up sequestered carbon to sort of offset the impacts associated with climate change. None of it, by the way, including the renewable energy certificates, was without controversy. I mean, so there's a lot of controversy. Is this just an indulgence for mm-hmm. ecological sins, for example, and let people continue to pollute? Or is it, in fact, a way to, to, to create a, a bridge between business as usual today and something in the future? <laughs>
0: Is it an indulgence or is it a bridge to the future? That question goes all the way back to 1977 and probably earlier. But it was 1977 when physicist Freeman Dyson wrote an article for the journal Energy entitled, Can We Control the Carbon Dioxide in the Atmosphere? Here's what he wrote. Suppose that, with the rising level of CO2, we run into an acute ecological disaster. Would it then be possible for us to halt or reverse the rise in CO2 within a few years by means less drastic than the shutdown of industrial civilization? His conclusion? Yes, it would be possible to slow climate change by planting trees, but not as a permanent solution. Instead, he saw trees as a short-term stopgap measure that would slow the process long enough for technology to catch up the long-term response if such a catastrophe becomes imminent must be to stop burning fossil fuels and convert our industry to renewable photosynthetic fuels nuclear fuels geothermal heat and direct solar energy conversion he continued but a worldwide shift from fossil to non-fossil fuels could not be carried out in a few years an emergency plant growing program would provide the necessary short-term response to to hold the CO2 at bay while the shift away from fossil fuels is being implemented. But there's another question. Shouldn't carbon markets be used to promote those new technologies too? To build the bridge, so to speak? As it turns out, they are. Carbon finance helped get renewables off the ground before they were profitable. And here's something else that's interesting. Ecosystem marketplace research shows that most companies that voluntarily buy carbon offsets are doing so as part of an overall carbon management strategy. And they mostly use offsets to tackle those emissions they can't eliminate internally. Some companies like Disney and Microsoft have created an internal price on carbon where the company charges individual departments for every ton of carbon dioxide they emit and then uses that income to purchase offsets for the company at large. The idea is that incorporating carbon into the company's bottom line will focus attention on emissions and accelerate internal reductions. You can learn about that in a new report called Unlocking Potential, State of the Voluntary Carbon Markets 2017 Buyer's Analysis which you can find in the show notes for this episode, episode 24 of Bionic Planet at bionic-planet.com. Once again, that's bionic-planet.com. There you can also support me by becoming a patron for as little as $1 per month. I'll explain more about that later in the show.
2: we were really grappling with this idea of forest carbon offsets. Um, at the time, we were having internal conversations about forests and climate and where dogwood sat within the forest and climate piece because climate change was becoming a real focus of uh, not just in the marketplace but also in the ENGO community. And uh, while this idea of carbon markets seemed like a natural place to start, We didn't want to be in a position of advocating for forest offsets to be used as a way to reduce fossil fuel emissions. And we really felt, though, that this project was different because Staples and other companies involved had a footprint in the forest where they're purchasing these offsets and having that closed loop, if you will, within the forest sector itself rather than the offsets being used to, you know, mitigate impacts from an entirely different sector.
0: That's something else that comes up over and over again in these ecosystem marketplace surveys. About a third of the companies that buy offsets look for a fit with the organization. Here's a quote from the buyer's analysis that I mentioned above. A utility company might prioritize buying landfill gas or renewable energy offsets because of the link such offsets provide to clean energy, an activity near and dear to a utility company's operations. So you've got two findings illustrating themselves in Carbon Canopy. One, the tendency of companies to look for offsets that fit their business, and the other, the tendency of companies that offset to do so as part of a broader emission reduction strategy.
1: we need to reduce our impacts first, right? So we reduce energy intensity, we reduce carbon intensity in the power supply that we buy. We we make more investments in renewables where we can, et cetera, and in terms of trying to meet our goals and targets. And so we need to do that always first. Now, economically, you can't necessarily always get to where you want to be, at least initially, by doing that because sometimes that requires bigger investments and so forth, and economically, it's just not... In the cards to do that. So, mm-hmm. we've, re- we've relied in the past on renewable energy certificates being used to develop new renewable energy projects and so forth. So, the idea was what we, can we use in the marketplace to use our influence to, to actually drive more renewable energy projects? And again, if you take it to a, a land based carbon model, what could we do to do the same here in Forest? But not focus strictly on carbon. I mean, carbon is a, a means to an end. The end was we want more land uh, under FSC management and certification. That was the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. And um, the carbon markets was, was just a means to help us get there. Not that carbon in those markets aren't important. They absolutely are. Mm-hmm. Um, they're critical. And as a matter of fact, we were looking at carbon as being sort of a foundational ecosystem service that could generate revenues for landowners in addition to things like, you know, watershed protection, uh nutrient loading, biodiversity credits, and things like that that were emerging. Again, it was a learning journey for, I, I think, both of us, right, Dana? Oh, yeah, absolutely.
2: We had no idea what we were getting into before we launched this project.
0: Okay. <laughs> I want, yeah, I might want to just quickly clarify, the, just for some listeners, uh, when you talk about nutrient loading, that's almost like a cap-and-trade for water where you decide what, how much nutrient, how much runoff from farms a water body can handle. You can pay farmers to reduce their, off, their runoff into water. Biodiversity is uh, under the Endangered Species Act. If there's a development that impacts habitat for an endangered species, they have to restore uh, or, or conserve habitat of equal or greater value, and that's where you start to get, again, payments going into landowners who maintain their land in a pristine way.
1: These are all the benefits that well-managed and healthy forests provide, right? I mean, these are the benefits that nature has been providing for hundreds of millions of years. And so um, it's just a matter of us making sure that we're keeping forests where they should be kept in forests, in forests, and, and where we're extracting some of the resources that we're doing it with, as Dana mentioned before, a lighter touch and, and one that has is, is got an eye toward minimizing the impacts on biodiversity and on water and, and so forth.
0: While we're talking about the Carolinas and deforestation, I wanted to share something with you. Something tragic, but informative. After Europeans arrived in the New World in 1492, the forests of both North and South America experienced a massive revival, and the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere plummeted. Why? because of guns, germs, and steel, as Jared Diamond put it in his book of that same name. More specifically, because Europeans killed Native Americans by the millions through a combination of slaughter and diseases like smallpox, against which the Native population had no immunity. I actually learned about the impact on forests in an audiobook called 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created by Charles C. Mann, which I got through audible.com. Man has another book, too, called 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus. I mentioned at the start of today's show that I joined the Audible.com affiliates program, which means you can get a free audiobook download and support me at the same time with a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet. That's bionic planet as a single word, with no dots, dashes, or spaces. Once again, audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet. If that's not your bag, you can also support Bionic Planet directly by giving me a good five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you subscribe, or by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. I've set the patronage page up so that you can support me per episode, but with a monthly cap. So if you think $5 per month is good for a five-episode month, you can pledge $1 per episode, but with a $5 monthly cap. That way, if I don't manage to generate five episodes in a month, you're not paying for something you didn't get. And if I go nuts and deliver 20 episodes one month, you won't get whacked either. By the same token, you can offer $5 per episode or 10 or 50 I won't complain. So let's get back to that meeting you had at jack of the wood. You decided you're going to pursue this thing, this carbon canopy initiative, and you set this goal of getting 20% of the Southern forest certified as sustainable. That's 40 million acres. Now you decide you're going to start in Southern Appalachia, and you're going to test a bunch of different carbon projects to see you know, what works, what doesn't, et cetera. The first thing you do is you build this coalition in 2007, right?
2: We launched it officially in 2007, but we were building the coalition prior to that uh, over the course of, you know, probably a year and a half, maybe two years, really pulling together the right partners and developing sort of the priorities and the strategy, mm-hmm. um, but it was officially launched, yes, in 2007. Okay,
0: and, uh, and it's very diverse. I mean, you have Domtar, International Paper, Home Depot, and then Forest Land Group. How did you identify the projects and, and who was handling that?
2: Yeah, so it was really a collaborative effort and one of the reasons that this project worked was because we got the right partners to the table that had the right expertise. So the Forestland Group is one of the country's largest industrial landowners. They happen to be a large landowner in the southern Appalachian region where we focus this project. Um, They were already FSC certified, so they already had sort of a a leaning towards uh, FSC. And they were a company that, you know, with a vision. They were willing to sort of experiment with leading-edge projects. So they made a great project because they could bring in the perspective of the larger industrial landowners. Mm -hmm. Um, Another example was Columbia Forest Products you know, the largest, uh, the country's largest producer of hardwood plywood and a major uh, supplier of hardwood plywood in the southern Appalachian area. They too had a strong commitment to FSC. They were one of the first adopters of FSC. And they too were a company that sort of was willing to, you know, take this leadership leap and experiment with new ideas and new concepts. So at the outset, we have realized that the carbon markets were very new, that this was an experiment, that we needed people at the table who could take a leap of faith with us, but also people at the table who had the connections that we needed to make the project successful. So again, the Columbia Forest Products being a major wood supplier and Domtar, again, committed to FSC, but also having a, a mill in the region, had, you know, access to landowners because they procure a lot of wood from landowners in the area, whereas staples and dogwood don't necessarily have those relationships. Uh, The companies that are out there every day on the ground buying the wood have some of those relationships, so that became really critical. And then with the Pacific Forest Trust, they became important because when we landed on using the standard that had been developed under California because we wanted our projects to have a high level of rigor and credibility, which was important to the buyers but also important to the landowners.
0: Meanwhile, in 2010, Staples came up with, with its uh, deforestation commitment uh, policy. We use uh, this site. It's called Supply Change, which we created. That they, they try to track uh, different companies commitments, and then they try to track um, reported progress. And I think your commitment is that 100% of all paper will be recycled or certified. Um, and at this point, you're at about 30%. And then I was looking in the annual report. There, there aren't any numbers yet. I mean, it's obviously clear from everything we're talking about that you're, you're taking action. But it seems like it's it's difficult to, to actually get the hard numbers to report. Is that is that turning out to be a bigger challenge than, than you expected?
1: You know, there are some gaps today that still exist, and again, the the big bottlenecks tend to be in the southeast where majority of our paper is actually produced. And we're committed to doing this, and the targets and timelines get a little bit squirrely because, again, based on where supplies come from and where we've got critical mass and market conditions, it's not as easy to put a timeline on some of those targets. But I would say that we're making really good progress in our commitments that we made in 2002, In 2010 with a revised policy
2: we're at a moment in time where we're really as a society starting to make a lot of transition in the way that we've been doing things and that's true with companies who are now trying to figure out how to control their supply chains Mm -hmm. and this is part of the reason why these kinds of projects like the carbon canopy project are so critical because We need to be experimenting. We need to be looking to new ways of approaching some of these problems. And we need to give ourselves the time and the space to actually try some new things that are out of the box and sometimes risky. And I really appreciate the companies that went down this road with us on the Carbon Canopy Project because it's exactly that. It was an experiment. It was you know, an attempt to try to figure out a new way of tackling an old problem that we have not figured out yet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of spirit that we need in the forestry sector right now.
0: Yeah. I've seen this area of debate in soybeans as well because uh, people talk a lot about, gee, should we go and source from jurisdictions that have no deforestation? And then the counter-argument to that is no, because then you're just leaving the places that need to improve to the worst elements. So you just say, well, the Southeast doesn't have the supplies, but other parts of the world do. Maybe we'll just buy from them, or do we stick and try to encourage people to change the way they manage their forests? Was that was that ever a part of the discussion, or or was it just a logistical issue that you're unable to... To source from other places?
1: Um, it's both, and quite candidly, if we abdicate our seat at the table and someone else picks up those tons of paper and they don't care, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that we care and want to stay engaged as a change agent and, and to try and um, use our influence in that supply chain um, is, is really where we want to be. Now, at some point, we have a policy for a reason, and if our partners aren't abiding by that policy and we feel that it's detrimental to the environment if it's detrimental to our brand then obviously and and we can't influence anymore then we, we we'll we'll move on because that's that's part of the policy too.
0: The companies consistently tell us that belonging to organizations you guys you belong to the Sustainable Purchasing Leadership Council, the Global Reporting Initiative and a lot of executives point to these sorts of multilateral organizations as being a great way to help them. Implement what they're trying to do. Can you address that a bit? Is this, has this, has, your membership in these organizations, has it had a concrete outcome? And if so, can you maybe talk about what it is?
1: Sure. We operate, you know, within the context of collaboratives all the time, and try and work with, um, you know, leadership groups that um, are are taking, you know, positions on, on on these issues that impact all of us. So, for example. Um, you know, we've been heavily engaged for many years with the World Resources Institute in Washington um, on issues around climate, um, on renewable energy, and, and also around um, forests. Um, Rainforest Alliance has been a partner, too, in the forest sector, along with Dogwood and, and others, and um, really informing us not only, you know, where we can make an impact in places like the southeast, but but other parts of the world as well. And within these collaboratives, it's not just... NGOs. I mean, the thing that I like about these collaboratives is that they're really what I term uncommon collaboratives. We really bringing in folks that really touch these products at every level, and also local groups and NGOs that can provide a, uh, a perspective that and, and a point of view that maybe you wouldn't get otherwise. And I think that's always helpful. It's it's um, it's critical. I mean, it's critical to change and and. Uh, if, if, we're, if everybody in the same room looks the same, and there's no diversity of thought, and there's no debate, then at the end of the day, things don't typically change.
0: Uncommon collaboratives. I'm glad he mentioned that because it's what this show is all about too. Cross-pollination, different perspectives, different disciplines, not just different sciences but hard sciences mixed with finance, mixed with diplomacy, mixed with corporate governance. I came into this sector from mainstream journalism 11 years ago while researching an article on biodiversity banking for Fortune magazine, and I found that every answer to every question I asked opened up a dozen other questions, and I got pulled into the weeds and spent a decade in them. I've now come to see how everything fits together. It's a perspective that. Few, if any, mainstream reporters have, but it's one that we all need to have if we're to fix this mess. That's why I created this podcast, to try and share what I've learned in the echo chamber with people outside of it. And my question to you is how am I doing? Is this helpful? If so, then you can help too by giving me a good review on one of the podcasting services or by becoming a patron at BionicHyphenPlanet.com, where you can help me out for as little as $1 per month. Bionic Planet is co-produced by Forest Trends, which covers part of my time, but I'd really like to scale this up. Add more episodes, bring in a second set of ears, take the time to edit better, get in a really good sound guy, so that every moment is an epiphany for you. If that's what you want, then give me a hand. Carbon projects aren't easy. You have to first create a blueprint for the project called a project design document, which shows how the actions that you're taking will reduce emissions. Then you have to get that blueprint validated by whichever carbon standard you're developing the project under, meaning a scientific panel has to agree that the plan is a good one. Then the project has to be verified by third-party auditors who come in and confirm that you're actually implementing it. Then once you generate the offsets, You have to sell them. In this case, Carbon Canopy pre-sold some offsets, but they still had to go out and find buyers for the others, a task that fell on Andrew Goldberg, who has since left Dogwood and now works for the Rainforest Alliance.
2: It was a process of sort of identifying companies that had both strong commitments to FSC certification, purchased Mm -hmm. from the South, and companies who tended to be on the leading edge in terms of thinking about and developing commitments around reducing their carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a lot of outreach, going to conferences and sitting down and talking and trying to penetrate through, you know, a lot of other things that companies are thinking about in terms of their sustainability practices. Um, So it did prove to be... Uh, more challenging uh, than one person's part of their time could could manifest at a mm-hmm. scale that would result in some critical mass, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we were able to find some additional buyers, and uh, we were successful in getting one of the first projects to meet the California standards in the U.S. across the finish line.
0: And your basic finding was that uh, if your if your forest is more than twenty-six hundred acres, and the and the price on carbon is more than a dollar fifty a ton, then this can work for you. But if you're smaller or it's lower, it's really not viable. Is that accurate, or am I am I oversimplifying it?
2: No, I think that's absolutely right. It, it's quite expensive to do these projects, and it's time-consuming as well. There's a lot that goes into measuring the carbon and projecting out carbon growth. And it's just a very complex set of things that need to happen in order to do a carbon project. And so the amount of time and energy and dollars that it takes going into it needs to be offset at least and hopefully more than offset by the amount of return that you get at the end of the day for Mm
3: -hmm.
2: all the headaches that are involved in this right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is not an easy project right now for most landowners. So we pretty much came to the conclusion that it really only works for large landowners, and it only works if the price of carbon is at $11.50, which means that for a lot of landowners, this is not going to be a viable path forward.
0: So you've got huge landowners who can pay for certification themselves. Then you've got these mid-sized landowners who can use carbon finance. And then for the smaller landowners, you went ahead and created something called the Appalachian Woodlands Alliance. How does this work?
1: The idea really is to to continue to find, you know, where are their connections within a small landowner, forest owner base, you know, in the South that we can continue to leverage. Um, As Dana mentioned before, folks like Columbia Forest Products and Dom and others that buy a lot of wood, you know, have these relationships today. And so through the Appalachian Woodlands Alliance, what we're trying to do is to continue to educate landowners about the benefit of FSC certification and about certification in general. And many of these companies, Domtar in particular, actually has foresters, and Columbia does too, that will go out and and actually help landowners get their land certified at no cost, which is a a very attractive program in the South. And again, it provides more opportunities for somebody like Staples to obviously purchase uh, wood-based products out of the Southeast that are um, FSC certified. So we're excited about where this
0: could go. And of course, there's more to sustainable forestry than just getting certified. What's the master plan for getting up to speed in, in time and at a scale that's going to get us out of this mess?
2: Yeah, so I think a couple of things, just backing up. I think our, as an organization, our understanding of the critical role that standing forests play right now in the fight against climate change has evolved significantly through both our experience with this project, but also just um, studying and being in the mix of conversations at a broader level about climate change and the role of forests. So we're really on a mission right now to put forest protection at the forefront of our climate agenda in the U.S. In the U.S., we just are not getting it yet that forests uh, in our country play a vital role in our ability to solve the climate crisis. Uh, we have a forest disturbance rate from logging in the southeastern region that's four times that of South American rainforest.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And we need a new sort of uh, generation of forest policies and innovation that can accurately address the sustainability challenges of the 21st century. So for us, rather than going landowner by landowner trying to do these very highly technical projects, um, going you know company by company trying to match you know, the money with the supply, we started to think more broadly about a landscape-level approach to sort of thinking about how do we begin to shift the way that we value forests uh, you know, at a, at a fundamental level both in government policy but also at a corporate level. So this is how we got to the point of starting the Wetland Forest Initiative, which was launched this year with a whole host of diverse partners in the coastal plain of the U.S. south, which is ground zero for industrial logging globally. Um, and the wetland forests along our rivers have some of the lowest value when it comes to timber values because they tend to be more pulpwood grade uh, wood because they're wet and they're um, the wet soils. They tend to be more crooked as they grow and they tend to be hollowed out in the middle um, on a more regular basis than a, an, another average forest. So from a timber perspective, they're you know really the lowest value from the timber perspective, but from things, from the value of things like carbon storage or flood control and watershed protection, the wetland along the rivers are absolutely some of the highest values in terms of ecosystem services. Mm-hmm. Two of the biggest, most costly natural disasters of 2016
3: mm-hmm. in the world yeah.
2: were flooding in the southeastern coastal plain. And a lot of that was not right along the coast. It was inland along these towns that are along the rivers. So we launched this campaign to sort of see if we could approach this problem from a landscape level and to build a collaborative effort focused on really changing the way that we value these forests and beginning to change not just the marketplace, but also a government policy an incentive
0: approach in this landscape. Dana Smith of Dogwood Alliance closing out this edition of Bionic Planet, referencing one of the huge, huge, huge issues that we'll be covering again and again. How to deal with all of these individual property owners as part of a larger landscape. It's an issue that matters not just in the United States, but around the world, from Indonesia to Brazil to Kenya. I wish we had the time and resources to dive into each of these specific initiatives that she and Mark mentioned, and if you want me to do that, you can become a patron at bionic-planet.com for as little as $1 per month. I hope you have a chance to visit the Dogwood website, by the way, and visit the Forest Trends site as well. They're my employer, and they've kindly agreed to let me use some company time for these podcasts, becoming essentially a co-producer. They do great work in developing countries as well as in Europe and North America. By the way, the next few weeks could be really busy ones. We've got the climate talks coming up in Bonn, and I'll try to crank out some episodes before, during, and after those, although I've given up on promising things like that. You can also visit Ecosystem Marketplace, which is my full-time gig. There, we do get a little more technical than I do on the podcast. but if I've sparked your curiosity here, you might find it worthwhile to go poking around. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick, coming to you today from Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Thanks for listening.